We are going to um, get into Acts chapter 11 today. And so if you've got a Bible with you, I invite you to find that. You can find it on your Bible, your phone, uh, your tablet, however you choose to do that. And we're continuing in the series that we call Upside Down, how the early church turned the world upside down. Wouldn't it be great to be a church that turns the world upside down? I feel like in so many ways the world has turned the church upside down from what we should be. And it's time we said, hang on, (laughs) it's time we turned it the other way. We want to be a church that turns the world upside down. I want Fresno to be turned upside down because of how the church functions. I I want my, my state to be turned upside down. Instead of just cowering back into the corner, oh no, it's so hard, it's so unfair. Hey, it's unfair everywhere. Come on, church. We're going to turn the world upside down. But there's what we've been talking about is some of the qualities that were happening in the early church, the first century church, that made this a church that turned the world upside down. We talked about the, the, the ways they prayed, uh, the ways they, they you know, loved each other. Today, we're, the way they served. They, they, we, last week, we talked about the kind of leaders they selected. Today, we're going to talk about, it's kind of a long title, International Proclamation. You think, what does that mean? Well, that means I was really struggling to come up with a better title. That's what that means. But we are going to look at Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. And I'll, I'll allow you to, you know, let's, we've just been standing for a while. So I'm going to read this in a moment uh, while you're seated. But um, this chapter unpacks what's happened in Acts chapter 10. So as I, if you want to skim 10, chapter 10 while I'm kind of getting us started here, that's fine. But, but I, I'll try to unpack it a little bit for you because these two chapters are all about change. And I don't know if you know about this, but the only constant in life is change. I am now old enough to remember how we used to do things, and there's lots of things that I miss about the way they were and how we did things in the past. Now, some things I'm really thankful for, but you, you know what, you know what I have things I miss? I miss when we didn't have self-checkout. Have you ever successfully got through the self-checkout at Lowe's? Even once? Okay, Sam, you have, but I, I, I can't. I, I will stand in a long line to not do self-checkout. I can't stand it. I can't stand it. What has happened? Not only do I have to bag my own groceries at the grocery store, I have to scan them myself. Look, why don't I just unload the truck for you while I'm at it, right? I, I, don't, I don't particularly like change. I don't. Now, if it's my change, that's different. But if it's someone else's change, that's not comfortable. But change is a constant everywhere. And we want stability in our lives. We want it at home and we want it at church. But it doesn't happen. Everything's changing around you all the time. And the early church experiences. The early church had a mandate to grow. A plan for expansion. If you go back to Acts Acts 1 verse 8, Jesus is speaking, kind of last words of Jesus to his disciples. He says this, You will receive power, meaning the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere. In Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's an expansion plan that Jesus gave to the disciples. Now, the book of Acts starts from up to about chapter 7. It's all in Jerusalem and around Judea. It's kind of all safe and tucked in there and it's feeling good. And it's like, it's amazing how quickly you get into something. I'll tell you, I'll make a couple of references to my church planting experience. You know, we were, we had been planting and we'd been, the church had started, we were about three or four months old. And a guy had come and talked to me. He said, you know, 
I really miss how we used to do such and such. Now, we're three months old and we've got traditions already. How does this happen? How does this happen? But if you start something twice, it's kind of a tradition, right? So it's in Jerusalem. And then chapter 8 tells the story of how it busted out of Jerusalem and went to Samaria. And they weren't so sure about that. But they worked it out. The Holy Spirit had come. They said, I guess, I guess this is for the Samaritans too. Okay. And they were sort of half Jewish, so they could kind of accommodate that. And then this chapter 10, the Holy Spirit now, the, the gospel, the message of salvation crosses over to the Gentiles. Whoa! That was, that was outrageous. That was explosive for them. Chapter 10 is sometimes referred to as the Gentile Pentecost because the Holy Spirit came in power to these Gentiles. They spoke in tongues as the, as the Jewish people did. And, and suddenly we've got this, the, 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 the gospel has broken open. I want to read to you chapter 11, starting at verse 1. We're going to pick that up there. It's, it goes like this. It says, soon the news reached the apostles and other believers in Judea that the Gentiles had received the word of God. But when Peter arrived back in Jerusalem, the Jewish believers criticized him. Now, Peter's going to explain what happened. So I don't need to go through all of chapter 10 for you, but he's going to explain. You entered the home of Gentiles and even ate with them, they said. And Peter told them exactly what happened. I was in the town of Joppa. Okay, that's on the coast. I was on the town of Joppa. And, and while I was praying, I went into a trance and I saw a vision. And something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners from the sky. And it, it came right down to me. And when I looked inside the sheet, I saw all sorts of small animals, wild animals, reptiles, and birds. And I heard a voice say, get up, Peter, kill and eat them. Verse 8, no, Lord, I replied, I've never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure or unclean. But the voice spoke from heaven, but the voice from heaven spoke again. Do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. This happened three times before the sheet and all it contained was pulled back up to heaven. Now, just then, verse 11, just then three men who had been sent from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were staying. The Holy Spirit told me to go with them and not to worry that they were Gentiles. These six brothers here, he, obviously he's got some guys with him, and we uh, accompanied me and we soon entered the home of the man who had sent for us. He told us how an angel had appeared to him in his home and told him, send messengers to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He will tell you how you and everyone in your household can be saved. Verse 15, as I began to speak, Peter continued, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as he fell on us at the beginning. And then I thought of the Lord's words when he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And since God gave these Gentiles the same gift he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to stand in God's way? And when the others heard this, they stopped objecting and began praising God. And they said, we can see that God has also given the Gentiles the privilege of repenting of their sins and receiving eternal life. What, what doesn't happen here is, is Peter's explanation of just who these guys were. He went to the home of a, a, of a Roman officer in, in the Roman military. You understand that the Roman Empire had control of Judea and Samaria and the, and the land of the, of the Hebrew people, the land of the Jews. They, they were the oppressive, occupational, governing people, empire, the enemy 
And that's who Peter was invited to. Enemies, Gentiles, military. That's where the... Think about this, Anabaptists. The spread of the gospel outside the Jewish world started with guys that were packing. I'm a good Anabaptist, so no need to... But it's like, wow. If God was going to like do something in a surprising way for me, that's it. But these were God-fearing people. God-fearing Gentiles. And they were in the city of Caesarea. I've got some pictures from Caesarea. I want to show you. Uh, this is uh, kind of an overlooking what was once a magnificent city. They called it Rome away from Rome. Herod wanted to impress Caesar, and so he built this magnificent city. He created, he went, he found a spot that was notoriously difficult port, and he created a magnificent shipping port. He, he had, uh, he had developed technology that was subsequently lost for something like a thousand years. He felt, he figured out how to how, use underwater concrete and built these pylons and piers, built this magnificent shipping center. From here, it went to the known world. This is a, not almost like the New York of its day. It's like the Los Angeles of its, of its day. And he had, he had theaters. He had a, a, a stadium where the, well, a hippodrome where, the, you know, the horse races, the chariot races like you'd see in, in Ben-Hur. He had towers. He had, he had a lighthouse. Uh, he, this place was fantastic. And it was pagan. And it was meant so that those pagan uh, leaders from Rome, when they came, had to come over to this backwater place that they called Palestine, when they had to come over there, they would feel like, oh, okay, this feels like home. Complete with all the debauchery and sin that you can imagine. That's Caesarea. Magnificent place. Probably the kind of the most iconic thing and most impressive thing about Caesarea was something, an aqueduct they built that brought water from Mount Hermon down to there so they would have fresh water, which they didn't have at the sea otherwise. So we're right on the Mediterranean Sea. This is, uh, this is taken a couple years ago. I've got one more picture of the aqueduct a little closer up. Somebody from our congregation is there in a white shirt and black shorts. Uh, if you can figure out who that is, I'll give you a dollar. Unless it's you, you don't get the dollar. Um, <laughs> you, if you were there, you don't get the dollar. Yeah. So, <laughs> right? So that's Caesarea. That's the land. That's, that's the setting that Peter, the good, faithful Jewish guy, is going to go into. It's like going to San Francisco. Might be a better comparison. This is like going right into the heart of San Francisco with the gospel. Peter, this good Jew and leading disciple, is now pushed way out of his comfort zone. This is not where he is feeling like at ease. Ministering to Gentiles. He's a good kosher guy. You know, we, in May, on uh, May 3rd, uh, Thursday evening, we're going to host um, somebody from Israel in our church. Her name's Sandra Barris, and she's going to be giving us a lecture on, on that. The Jewish um, settlement um, movement and what's happening over there in Judea and Samaria. And um, she's going to stay at my home for one or two nights. And she said, I said, well, I'll be happy to host you. She said, well, that would be fine, but I eat kosher. And so I can't prepare any food in your kitchen and I can't use your fridge. And I said, well, that's fine. We've got a little guest fridge and you can have the guest room and you can, do, you know, we'll. 
I mean, she's going to be a guest in my home, but she's not going to touch any of my stuff. And guys, no bacon that week. No bacon, right? So I'm going to get a feel for this. I know in our house, when there's no bacon, that's just like a day of mourning, right? And yet, here's the thing. Being a part of something that God is doing is going to be exciting. It's exciting. Being an observer or on the outside of what God is doing is unsettling. It makes you feel weird. You get skeptical and and full of questions. And Peter, here's the good thing about Peter. He was ready for God to do more in his life and the other's life. And God had to speak to him through a vision, had to get a hold of him really by the scruff of the neck, say, Peter, I'm doing something. Get ready. And Peter said, okay, Lord, I'll do it. I'll do it. And we want to be the same kind of people to, to be ready for God to do more in your life and in the lives of others. And the Jewish believers in Jerusalem, when they got word of what had happened in Caesarea, they were completely rattled by all of this. Right? It was incomprehensible to them that the Gentiles, who they'd always, listen, they'd always been told to keep your distance, stay away from them, don't associate with them, don't eat in the same kitchen as them. Right? And, and, and the Gentiles obviously didn't understand their faith and their culture and their history. And now they could receive the gospel, which these Jewish believers essentially saw faith in Christ as an extension of their Jewish faith. It was ethnically exclusive for them. And now this is happening? And, and as exciting as their church growth was in Jerusalem, remember we said they were daily growing it was still their status quo and it was safe because it was within their ethnic boundaries. And most of it, let's be honest, most of us, me included, love the status quo. That's where it's comfortable and it feels good. But God wants more for you. Don't settle. Don't settle for what's easy or predictable or within your grasp of doing. Desire more from God. Desire more of what He has for you. Desire more for the gospel. Because for that Jerusalem church, a change had come and they had a choice. Accept it and be joyful about it or reject it and miss what God was doing. And it took some convincing by Peter because he has to go back and explain to them what happened. But eventually, thankfully, they saw that God was fulfilling his promise to save all people. God was fulfilling this thing that Jesus said, it's going to grow. This thing's going to grow. It's going to start here in Jerusalem. It's going to go to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's going to. But I got to admit this. If you're taking notes today, you can write this one down. This is in your, your outline. Even good changes can make you mad. Even good changes can make me mad, right? When, when, when someone points out something in my life that I'm comfortable with, but is not good for me. Okay. Some of you remember a pastor that was a pastor here for about a decade. His name was uh, Robert Radke, Bob Radke. And in his kind of last years of retirement, Bob came back to Bethany Church. And he hadn't been here, but if, and came back about the time, same time that I started here. And when he came back, he pulled me aside. He says, you're doing a good job, but here's some things you can work on. First time I met him. So helpful. So appreciated. Right? But actually, he was right. He was right. He was not wrong. And he delivered it in a kind and loving way, direct but loving way. I'm really thankful. I'm really thankful for that. It was a privilege to be able to, to take his funeral service, and it was an honor, right? But it didn't feel good at the time. Change is hard. 
Last week, remember, we talked about allowing wise and godly people to speak into your life. They may tell you some things that you don't want to hear. But it's good because they have an objective perspective that you and I, you don't have. We can't see it properly. And so let those people speak into your life. Seek them out. Ask for them. Even good changes can make you mad. We had an experience before we came to Bethany. We were attending Clovis Hills Community Church. Great church. And we were attending the Saturday night service. And I loved it because Saturday night they met in their big auditorium. And it was dim. And then the full band. And there was hardly anybody in there. It was just great. We could go as a family. I didn't have to talk to anybody. I could just just keep to myself. It was great. Right? And then one day they announced, Hey, we... uh, we're going to move this service into the smaller youth building and we're going to change the music to unplugged worship style and uh, it's going to be great. And I thought, no, it's not. How dare you change my church without even asking me? How dare you? I was mad. I was upset. I'm like, no, you can't do that. You're going to have a chance to get to know more people and make connections. Oh, I don't want connections. I don't want to meet anybody. I like staying to myself. Right? Guess what happened? They made the move. And it was great. And the worship was better. The connections were better. The teaching was the same. I mean, it was fantastic. It was a really good move. But if they'd asked my opinion and said, we're going to do this by vote. Who wants to move? I'm like, no. Right? Even good changes can make you mad. But there's still good changes. And they have to happen. Years ago, I'm going to try to tell a couple of stories in here. Years ago, my wife and I, we were, and my sons, the four of us, we were asked to plant a church. And up in Canada, as Corey alluded to, and, um, you know, that church, it was crazy. We, we, uh, we did things pretty differently. It was very casual. We... We used language that people could understand. We dressed like normal people. We, we used music that matched what they listened to. We baptized 100 people in five years. I mean, it was really, really fun. It was really exciting. Years to follow, they've baptized many more. It's the biggest church in the city now where they are. But it took a willingness to change what was expected and what was normal so that the gospel grabbed a hold of people in a fresh way because the majority or at least half of the baptisms were people who had been raised in some kind of religious upbringing, got turned off by the heavy religiousness of the church, but were seeking a relationship with Jesus and came back and found Him. But just like my experience of a worship service venue change, change is disruptive. And it takes discipline to say, I'm going to get on board with what God is doing. I'm, I'm going to be a part of it. And the inclusion of the Gentiles, in this case, back in the, the early church, was not an overnight success. They didn't just say, yeah, okay, and everything was smooth sailing. It was hard. If you read on in Acts, you'll see that they continued to grapple with just how much of the Jewish regulations the Gentile believers should maintain. Acts chapter 15 is like a whole chapter about what we call the Jerusalem Council, where all there's all this conflict going on, and they said, finally, time out. Get everybody together. We're going to hash this out. We're going to figure this out. We're going to talk it through and come up with a plan, and that's exactly what they did. You can read about that in Acts chapter 15. But they finally uh, had to kind of work through it. So it didn't change all at once. It took 
some time in multiple conversations. The Apostle Paul addresses it later. And yet, I'll be honest, if I were in their shoes, I would have some of the same hesitations. Because hadn't God given those Jewish laws to his people? Wasn't it woven into the very fabric of their life and their faith to observe the laws of circumcision, of food, of of purity regulations? I mean, how could something that God implemented, God started it, God set it up, how could that now be obsolete? It's because those rules were given as a, the Apostle Paul calls it temporary custody, a, a holding pattern until the coming of Christ. Jesus broke down the laws. He replaced it with a new commandment to love one another, to trust only in Him. The, the Apostle Paul, who himself had been the strictest of Pharisees, he wrote about it. Look at these slides I got on screen. This is from Ephesians chapter 2. It says this, Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. Okay, so now he's writing years later. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel. You did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. But now, now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you've been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this, get this, he did this by ending the system of law with its commands and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Not just Paul. Paul wasn't the only one to talk about this. The writer of Hebrews wrote about it too. His point is that because Jesus is our permanent high priest who has secured our righteousness permanently and continues to represent us in heaven, the old law is finished. The writer of Hebrews wrote this. When God speaks of a new covenant, it means he has made the first one obsolete. It is now out of date and will soon disappear. Yes, the law was God's idea, God's invention. But the law was not an end in itself. The law was just a means to an end. It it was meant to show our inability to be righteous. And it was meant to guide us to be righteous by faith in Christ only. It's the only way we can be right with God. Now, why does any of this matter? Why does this whole program of the, uh, of the, the, the whole program of Jewish law becoming obsolete? Why does this matter? It matters for this reason. If you're writing this, if you're taking notes, write this one down. God saves people, not programs. God saves people, not programs. And you can substitute whatever else in the room. God saves people, not buildings. God saves people, not ideas, doctrines, whatever. God saves people, not programs. I'm sure that none of us would argue that keeping Jewish laws of purity and kosher foods and circumcision and how to cut your hair or whether or not to get a tattoo are necessary for salvation. That... Those are not salvation issues. You say, yeah, those, we, we're done with it. That doesn't even apply to me. I'm not worried about the Jewish laws at all. But don't we have other laws 
religious notions and habits and programs that we might hold on to for the wrong reasons. The first uh, church where I was on staff, I served as a music minister. And in those days, the pastoral team, get this, the pastoral team sat on nice armchairs on the stage. Anybody ever go to church that did that? Okay. Now imagine me. You've known me for a few years now. Imagine me, strangled with a necktie, having to sit still behind the sermon while he's preaching. Do you have any, any idea how hard that is? And I'm, this was not just any preacher. This guy. Three words, and you are ready for a nap. I mean, this guy was incredible. He could put anybody to sleep. He was so good at that. And there am I. Right? Why? That's how we've always done it. That's just how it's done. Amazing. We have rules and laws and regulations of our own, don't we? Everything we do in the church community needs to be constantly reviewed. We have to ask, are the things we do just religious programs maintained out of habit and tradition? Or are the things we do helping us become fully alive by making Christ Jesus known from our communities to the world? See, when Jesus comes back, he's not coming back for the organ or the drums or a pulpit or a music stand. He's not coming back for buildings or communion tables. He's not coming back to gather suits and neckties and dresses or shorts or khakis or Bethany Church t-shirts. He's not going to gather up the programs we call youth group and Awana and connection groups and the church service. He's coming to gather his church, his bride, the people of God, all you who have put your faith in Christ. That's who he's coming back for. Those who have listened to the voice of God and live and put their faith in him. Be ready and be ready to help the people around you be ready. Because that's who Jesus is coming for. People, not things, not ideas, not programs, not stuff. Not traditions, not habits. God's in the business of saving people, not programs, not traditions, not habits, not good activities. Programs and activities are necessary. We need them and they're awesome. It's how we share the gospel. It's how we help each other grow in our faith. It's, it's how we equip people for the work of ministry. But just as culture changes, the programs, the ways we do things have to change or we lose touch with the very people To whom we reach. God saves people, not programs. And the early church had to come to grips with that. And the turning point in Peter's explanation to his fellow believing Jews happens in verse 17. I love this. In recognition of the Holy Spirit's powerful presence upon the Gentiles, Peter said this, And since God gave these Gentiles the same gift He gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to stand in God's way? Who was I to stand in God's way? You've seen some pretty interesting ways that God's work, that God works, I'm sure. I've seen some unique churches. You probably have too. There's one called the Biker Church. There's, actually, there's a lot of places called the Biker Church, but there's one right up on Madeira. Can we show that? There it is on the left. This ain't your mama's church. That's the name of the church. This ain't your mama's church. I've got to be honest. I would like to go to that church. All right? 
because they ride motorcycles, right? Or there's, I thought there was just one cowboy church. I tried searching for cowboy church. Turns out there's lots of cowboy churches, mostly in Texas. I'll give them that. But there's a cowboy church up here in Prather. Cowboy church. Oh, well, there's, that's kind of interesting how God works. 27 years ago, I was in, at a music festival in England, and uh, I was introduced to a rave church, a raver church. I don't know, not my deal, right? The Vineyard Movement had American evangelicals up all up in arms 30 years ago, 35 years ago, really, because their founder, John Wimber, was cracking jokes and teaching on the active gifts and working of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes wore a Hawaiian shirt to boot. Every new move of God, every new idea for reaching the lost and discipling believers has faced and will face opposition because we all, all of us, me included, have a hard time when someone messes with our traditions. It happens. My very first Christmas here, we did Christmas Eve service a little bit and someone said to me, you're messing with our traditions. I said, I'm sorry? Not sorry? Right? Whether we're age 5 or 15 or 25 or 50 or 75, we have our preferred way of doing things. Change is hard, but traditions don't save people. Jesus saves people. Thankfully, the believers got on board with Peter's rhetorical question. And we need to ask it to, who am I to stand in God's way? Who am I to stand in God's way? I already mentioned the Jerusalem Council of Acts 15, but I just want to take you back there. Because after debating back and forth these believers about the necessity of Jewish regulations, and, and again, keeping in mind these were ingrained in them for generations how they ought to do things, the leader of the Jerusalem church spoke. His name is James, who's a half-brother of Jesus, and he said this. He said, My judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. We should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. This is what it means to not stand in God's way. You make it easy for unbelievers to come to faith and to grow in maturity. The apostles did not water down the gospel. They did not change the message. But they changed the packaging of the message and cross cultures to do so. I don't know how to make this more clear. The ones who were kind of doing things right, had to make all the accommodations for the ones that hadn't got there yet. Those of us who have like worked hard for it and, and made the sacrifices and, and we get it, we're the ones who are to make more sacrifices for the sake of the, of the lost. That's the gospel. You think, well, I've paid my dues. I know. And there's still lost people. So we'll keep paying until we reach more. That's what it means. That's the invitation. That's the cost. And we keep at it. The believers had then formalized their commitment to the Gentiles in a a written letter after Acts 15, uh, the the conference, the council that they had. And they sent out Paul and Silas and some others to distribute the message, to to spread the letter around. And they, they sought not to make it difficult for the Gentiles. And here's what happened. Acts 16.5 says this. And so the churches were strengthened in their faith and grew larger every day. Why? 
Because they said, you know what? We're willing to put our traditions on the shelf so that it's easy for the Gentiles to come to Christ and grow in faith. Anything we do that could be a barrier to the unbeliever has to go. We don't want to stand in God's way. I don't know about your own life, but I know there's places in my life I do that. Assumptions I make, judgments I make, attitudes I have, programs I love. Friends, I'm really thankful the Jewish believers figured it out. I hope you are too. We sang about it today. Thank you, God, for saving me. Because if they hadn't adjusted, you wouldn't have gotten the message that God loves you and He wants to rescue you from your sin. And the church has got to keep working on this. By the church, I, I mean you and me, individuals. We are the church. You are the church. We're the ones who have to say, this applies to me too. Help me, Lord. Help me, Lord, to get this. It's a simple question. What if, what if, you know, what programs or what religious habits, what attitudes? I'm not talking about doctrine here or beliefs, but what are the things that I, what would I be willing to relinquish if it helped us be more accessible to an unchurched person? Good changes can make you mad. They do for me, but they're still good. God saves people. It doesn't save programs. And we want to strive to be, to never be a barrier to a person who's apart from God from hearing, embracing, and maturing in the gospel of grace. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this amazing moment in the life of your church and the growth of your church when these people had the maturity and the sense to say, hey, God's doing something. Let's get on board with it. Lord, don't ever let us be the ones holding, holding back. Don't ever let us be the ones to stand in your way. And Lord, in my own heart, in my own life, if there's, if there's things that I hold on to that, that are a barrier, show me what those are, God. And help me just to be open-handed and let it go. Lord, help me be excited about making sacrifices of my comfort and my preferences for the sake of the gospel. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your church. We thank you for the good things you want to do. We want to be all a part of it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.